Hey, Matt, is it Xenophon or Xenophone? Xenophon. They didn't have they didn't have phones back then. Really? That was your whole that was your whole yeah. setup right there. Yeah. Hmm. Although phones would have made it a lot easier for them to get out of uh, made some calls out of Persia. Yeah. Yeah. Call their moms. Mom, Cyrus died. Come pick me up. Yeah, yeah. So that that was your whole intro. Is you wanted me to set that phone bit up, right? Oh, don't give away the the, the magic of the podcast. The, scenes, the man behind the curtain. Yeah. All right. Okay. Telephone joke. A little light humor. I thought you were making fun of me because I can't pronounce names very well. And I th- I said xenophone when we back in people when we picked this. It's friendly teasing. That's not because it's hard to know how to pronounce things when you just read them. And you don't I mean, know. We're on a big podcast too. A lot of listeners get all this pressure, and sometimes you know. Yeah, you can't overthink it. Do you remember? I, I for a long time in my head, I pronounced it colonel, not colonel. I think no you said that before. There. Yeah. Say S sword instead of sword when you're a kid. You got to learn these things. If you never heard them out loud, you don't know. It's um, I will say this. English is my first language. It's the only language I know to speak. I will occasionally catch myself being like, how did I learn this? All the like little, like weird, confusing things that I sometimes think, could I learn another language? And I would think, oh, they must have these little rules that are kind of confusing. Yeah. Like it's the same word, but it means four different things. They do have that. It just seems like a lot of work and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm, I'm through those those tricky waters with the English language. Oh, with English, yeah. Like, oh man, I've had to learn that every year. Whew. It was Spanish. They have for is it's estas and s for some, and it's really hard. It seems kind of random to know which is which. Yeah. When you use estas or s, you, you, s um, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but didn't you study Arabic in college? In college, yeah. That's very, that's an interesting story. Yeah, that's a hard language because there's different, there's, it's more squiggly. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's not, it's, yeah. But I always thought that was, you told me that early on. I was like, that's, Matt's a, a learned person. He's a, mm. he didn't have his comfort zone. If I, it, I should, well, I should have uh, gone overseas and learned it fluently. Yeah. Rolling and rolling in bank, but it, nope. I, just, I know the alphabet. That's about it. That's, Not a, to get hey, paid. Don't don't degrade your knowledge. Yeah, they have twenty. They're hard because they don't. They have vowels. They have twenty-eight characters. Yeah, and they have six vowels. But a lot of the times they don't write the vowel. The vowels like are little little marks that are written above the letters. Yeah. So yeah, they got a lot of like tricky little a lot of rules little rules and I, a lot of the language stuff I think is just learning by just doing and repetition and talking you like even with English I can't really articulate the grammar rules or why things are a certain way you just kind of know it sounds right or it's wrong feel. Yeah. can't tell you the preposition or whatever modifies the blah it's just like oh, okay it's better you say you know you know what's also funny is when you're learning language here in America and uh, I learned French is and I don't know if this is true, but like for English, 95% of the people get along fine with English here and they don't know all the 
rules of grammar or whatever and it's it's just it is what it is yeah but when you're learning these you know spanish french german you think it's like really and it is important to know all this stuff but i wonder if it's that important does that make sense i don't think so okay and i think learning another language you can sometimes you compare it to english and it kind of helps your understanding of the structure and the rules of english you just break like oh in french they do it this way so oh yeah in english what's the equivalent and you're like oh i didn't know that's why it was yeah like that. my ear it sounded right yeah. um the book we're going to be talking about tonight i was doing a little research on it speaking of translations and this is one of the works that was used i believe to teach latin early on because it was just sort of straightforward prose I think it would be Greek. Greek? But, but Greek. Yeah, close. Whatever. I, I thought it was one of those old languages. I could have sworn. Let me do some. No, more. it's Greek, Peter. Is it Greek? Okay. Did you read the book? I did read the book, but now I'm confused because I thought, I swear, I thought the, the story. I, no, uh, a lot of the Roman stuff is Latin. But no, that is true. Like uh, a lot of the, you know, the fancy rich people education back in the day, 17, 1800s probably before but anyway they would you know they translate homer from greek and then you know see julius caesar's memoirs from the latin ovid all that stuff so they learned you'd learn an educated person you know spoke greek and latin and read all the ancient they read xenophon and tacitus and all that stuff. okay i i got confused it the way it was described is um, relatively pure Attic dialect, not yeah, unlike yeah. Caesar's, one of Caesar's works for Latin students. I got confused. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, same, similar thing. They're like yeah, the, okay. the, not the high flying fancy. Yeah. Is Where, like, like us talking or, a, you know, some easier to read versus Shakespeare, or the King James Bible or something. Yeah. So anyway, um, do you have any more on this intro, or is it just the phone? Xenophon, Xenophon. Xenophon, Xenophon. I want to get my phone joke in. That was pretty good. Yeah, you know, it is. What I mean, it we've is. had better intros. Not bad. But if they'd had phones, movie doesn't work with phones. Mm-hmm. We could have texted, texted each other. Yeah. Xenophon would be like, hey, let's. Anyway. And on that note, welcome to There Will Be Books, a podcast about books and phones. I'm Peter, joined as always by Matt. Matt, we are talking about our April book that we picked. The The title is either the Anabasis, the Persian Expedition is the title on the cover I have. It's by Xenophon. And it is his account, uh, of kind of a, turned out to be a very famous account of retreating army i would say in most basic terms um through a hostile land and sort of a look into i don't know for me it was a look into how different the time was and also surprisingly how similar people acted in in a way and we can get into that later but that was one of the things i kind of took from it but i want do you want to give a kind of more detailed um, for people who aren't familiar with uh, Xenophon? Who was he? What is his story? And kind of yeah. your, initial, your initial thoughts? Yeah. 
my copy is a Xenophon and it's the Anabasis of Cyrus, which is interesting because Anabasis or Anabasis pronunciation. Pronunciation. That it means march up country, mm -hmm. right? And so it were uh, one of the questions I kind of ran into is like, whose Anabasis is it? Because it could be the army, it could be Xenophon's. I heard somebody make a case that it was Cyrus's, or it's, it's called the Anabasis of Cyrus, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really more about Xenophon or the army. Or, so whose Anabasis is kind of a, an interesting question. But yeah, synopsis, Xenophon, it's told from his perspective. It's a memoir. In third person. I think 30 years later. Yes. Yeah. It, it was not written right after the events that are discussed. Yeah. It's him as an old man kind of looking back on the time. He joins up back in the day. It's it's a little after, right? Not before. That confused of you know, the famous the 300 Xerxes. Yeah. The, Thermopylae, Marathon, all that stuff. It's around 400 BC is when the... Yeah, yes. It's after that, before Ale little before Alexander the Great, though. Yep. Right in between there. The Persian uh, Empire, the old king just died, and his son, Artaxerxes, took over. Artaxerxes has a younger brother named Cyrus, who kind of wants to be king, thinks he deserves to be king uh and cyrus he's in charge of a large chunk of asia you know like a prince he's you know got certain other territories under con his control and so xeno he, he cyrus is looking for mercenaries he says to help put down a rebellion in kind of uh some of the territory he's on in the control of so he gets about 10,000 Greek mercenaries, of which Xenophon is one. I think he signs up for adventure. He's more a philosopher than a, a soldier, but, you know, he signs up to fight to supposedly help Cyrus uh, quell rebellion, you know, good money, mercenary pay. So as they march along, uh, they get further and further away from where they're supposed to fight, and people start... The, the soldier, the mercenaries start grumbling. And they're like, hey, what, what, I don't think, I think there's something else going on here. What's going on? And rumors start circulating that, oh, he, Cyrus is going to try to overthrow his brother and become king. Cyrus, doesn't he deny it at first? But then finally it kind of becomes clear, oh, no, he's, you know, he kind of tricked us. And uh, yeah, we're going to fight Artaxerxes for the throne. Yeah. So that's the, that's the, and the main that's kind of like book one and yeah cyrus dies during the battle that they if correct me if it, i'm wrong they win the battle they but, won the, i mean they won the battle yeah but then cyrus kind of recklessly but halfway smartly we'll we'll get into that tactically later because it has to do with alexander the great but he kind of rushed at his brother and he's like he knew if he killed his brother he's king right then and there cyrus gets his with the javelin and dies so even though the greeks won the battle there's no one to pop up the throne and artaxerxes survived so they won the battle but basically lost the war to use an old cliche yeah right and then they're stuck deep in persian territory with a king they just tried to overthrow who can't be too pleased with them and it's like a sticky situation all around 
you know? And so the bulk of the book, the fun part is like an, half of it's an adventure tale. They have to try to get back to Greece from just outside Babylon in Iraq. Yeah, the heart of the Persian Empire. And it's, and it's, yeah, and it's a couple things stood out for me um, from the, from the tale. Um, the first I thought was interesting is just the mechanics and how to control this 10,000 people in an army, like how to gain consensus and the fra- how fractured it was. Um, I thought yeah. was an interesting aspect of the book. And, so it, and it isn't kind of an adventure story, but it is sort of it. Xenophon goes into the rivalries and the backstabbing and the conflict. And mostly I was surprised by like they would ask the soldiers, like, what, what do you want to do? like Mm -hmm. numerous times and i thought oh i I thought they would just kind of command them or just tell them what to do yeah but there's an element of um how do i put this that that the soldiers are kind of at any point will go to the highest bidder and then you know maybe they could you know trade on people that they were fighting for did you get that sense that that, like money and and, yeah um, maybe promises of land or stuff like that were well yeah they're mercenaries and so it's interesting a lot of the book like the the meat of the book i think why the book has survived and is taught is like taught in the air force academy in west point you know all these years later is because it's about how to lead it's about xenophon is fascinated and interested in what motivates people what makes them tick and how to kind of, there's a lot, Xenophon gives a lot, there's a lot of speeches in it. Xenophon gives some, some of the other generals give some speeches. But it's all, yeah, it's about how to lead, how to figure out what motivates people and command, you know, an army of men. So that's, I think that's the key to it. That's what makes it interesting. Xenophon is really good at it. I would say the Xenophon parts where he is giving these speeches, he does it a couple times, like near the end, he gives a couple very, like powerful kind of like saving his own neck type speeches and then there's speeches about like the nature of of you know um leading men into battle and stuff like that i thought those were the highlights of the book for me they just seemed like they spoke to and who knows if like the translation is i i don't know greek um but it seemed very timeless the sort of um wisdom that he had about battle and sort of you know if you're fighting for something you're you're more likely to you know fight harder than someone who's just i don't know i thought those aspects of it were um you know in our day and age we you know it's sort of felt timely to read this yeah in a way so yeah so there's a couple things i want to get into like nuts and bolts that you just touched on okay let's go um so i guess let's start with Let's start with it. The the motivation factor. Mm-hmm. And we should say Xenophon studied under Socrates. Yes. One of him and Plato were probably Socrates's most famous pupils. At least they, I mean, they are now. I don't know what it was like back then. So that's a big part of, you know, presumably Xenophon being so good at rhetoric and understanding people. He had a very famous tutor. But I wanted to read kind of this, it's a, it's a longer quote, but I wanted to get your take on it. I'll tell you who wrote it, tell you who wrote it later. Okay. 
but it's kind of his take on so so right after they lost the battle the army and everybody in it are scared or yeah they're, they're kind of scared they're in hostile territory artaxerxes is thrilled with them uh there were some negotiations initially after the persians wanted is like you guys lay down your arms and we'll give you safe passage out of the country and the greeks are like no our arms are the only thing that make us you know give us a chance we can't we don't trust you not to just massacre us and so there's a little bit of negotiations uh some of the top merchants like greek generals eventually agreed to go and negotiate with the persians they were betrayed and like all their top generals were killed by the persians Mm -hmm. and so right after that there's nobody in charge of this army that's already terrified uh xenophon in his telling has a dream where zeus burns his father's house down with the bolt of lightning and here i think here's a take i think a compelling take about the significance of that and kind of motivation and everything Okay. okay um he woke up Xenophon. He woke up in a sweat. It suddenly struck him. Death was staring the Greeks in the face, yet they lay around moaning, despairing, arguing. The problem was in their heads, fighting for money rather than for a purpose or cause, unable to distinguish between friend and foe, they had gotten lost. The barrier between them and home was not rivers or mountains or the Persian army, but their own muddled state of mind. Xenophon didn't want to die in this disgraceful way. He was no military man, but he knew philosophy and the way men think, and he believed that if the Greeks concentrated on the enemies who wanted to kill them, they would become alert and creative. Uh, Xenophon decided to be Zeus's lightning bolt, waking the men up and illuminating their way. So I think his strongest, what I gather from Xenophon is like, I don't know tactically and I could be wrong because he I felt like he was often like in the back like he was the rear guy I think he's he's maybe not the most tact like I said I was kind of doing some research and people were saying oh he's just like this tactical genius what I gather was he was like reading the um reading the room so to speak and knowing his men and then communicating to them like what they need to do and more importantly what they need to like put in their head and think about to be successful like soldiers because i had a quote too that that kind of ties into what you said and then there's one at the very end where someone kind of throws this criticism at him where he like the criticism was essentially that he just cared too much for his men or he cared too much for the thoughts of his men but i think that was like the important thing for him was sort of that connection so to speak where it is a sort of a personal type thing. And I I think that's sort of like taught in like, I've never joined the military, but there is like this, if you trust your, you know, commanding officers, like have your best, you know, kind of your everything, they're not gonna put you in like super dangerous situations. I think you'll fight harder for them. And then, It's more elaborate than that, but I, I, that's kind of the basis for, I think, why he was successful in leading this. Yeah, I, I, he wasn't just a tactical genius. He doesn't get into a lot of his like, diagram his tactics. No. It's really more about, he knows people, and that's kind of what makes it fascinating. I think that's why it's taught the military today. And that's what the, the, my quote is from uh, Mr. Robert Green, 
Okay. But I know you're a little wary of. He wrote a book on war. Okay. Strategies. And that's his, and I, I thought it was a good point. I kind of buy into that. Is like initially, like the, the army's kind of discombobulated, don't know what to do. They're, fi- they're mercenaries. So they don't, I mean, they're just kind of, you know, <clears throat> at a loss. And Xenophon kind of realized he used his dream as kind of a spur. Be like, okay, we need some clarity of purpose here. So he rallies the troops and he, he focuses on and like the Persians betrayed us. They're our enemy. We're not going to let them win. We're going to fight them and go back home. So it was like what they needed at that moment was a, a, a story, you know, about, and then it's something to do and purpose. And he gave it to him. That was the, the beginning, the start of his. Well, there's also, I had this quote and it's sort of the mindset. And I think you, you could argue, you see this in like, um, kind of war stories or war writing even today, sort of um, how do you have to think about yourself in battle or war? And he, he writes, I have noticed this point too, my friends, which is interesting because he's kind of in control of these people and he considers them his friends, that in soldiering, the people whose one aim is to keep alive usually find a wretched and dishonorable death. While the people who, realizing that death is the common lot of all men, make it their endeavor to die with honor, somehow seem more often to reach old age and have a happier life when they are alive. So you see what I'm saying where it's, I've seen movies where it's like the soldier basically functions thinking death is the common thing. I'm already dead in a certain way. And I just have to act this. If I, if I think about, Oh, I just have to stay alive. And that's the only concern you have, then maybe you are not going to fight with, just a soldiering mindset. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was an interesting way of him trying to get a, a group of mercenaries to sort of buy into yeah. this journey. I, uh, I highlighted that part too. Okay. And you know what my note said? What? Braveheart! Exclamation point. <laughs> you haven't seen it, but uh, Mel Gibson says something like that. Yeah. All yeah. men die, but not all men truly live. So, yeah, I think... Uh, yeah. That's that. That was one of the the key parts, and that was sort of his sort of rise to sort of take over. Um, and I think it's the word, like you said, tactically. I didn't. Some of that kind of stuff gets a little not muddled in the story. He doesn't go too much into yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's you know, I'm sure he was good tactically, but I think what made him brilliant was his understanding of people. Because yeah. the mood shifts, it, it, things change. Uh, another thing I kind of wanted to get into was kind of some of the speeches he gives. If you, you kind of dig into it, he's being a little sneaky. He's not. Uh, well, okay. So there's a lot of, so when they, so they go through a lot, they're retreating and there's this famous scene where they like climb the crest of a mountain and they see the sea and they all start yelling to see the sea. Like they've, they made it mm-hmm. out of the big danger. Yeah. And if you notice, there's a lot of sacrifices and speeches about the gods and sacrificing to the gods after they reach the sea. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because I think a lot of it, that, that danger of the immediately, like the entire Persian army might come down upon us. We got to go. Yeah. That kind of evaporated when they reached the sea and more things started to fall apart again. The soldiers, Xenophon talks about how they're looting 
mm-hmm. uh, more than they should, you know, they, um, yeah, they're kind of having their way with, you know, yeah, country. Um, like, well, so, so, so order kind of breaks down after they see the sea without that spur of death. And so you see a lot more relying, uh, Xenophon relying on what, what you call piety. I you noticed know, that, too, that like, as a way of keeping keeping morale. There's a lot in the second half about like omens, like oh, and that's my point. Is it's after they reach the sea, okay? And discipline starts to break down. Gotcha. That he starts to lean on. And a guy, I didn't. A guy, I read an essay by Wayne Ambler. I'm not smart enough to, to pick this out on my own, but he pointed me to this and was like, oh, that is interesting. So he gives a couple different speeches. And then after his dream, and then in his second speech, he gives it to the other leaders, you know, the yeah. other the, the officers and bigwigs. And in that speech, he appeals to their honor and doesn't really mention safety. He talks about the importance of living uh, or dying a noble death if you have to die. Probably, I think it's where that quote came from. Yeah. In the third speech, he gives right after that to the common soldiers. He mentions safety a lot. He talks about how we want to get safe home and everything. So right there, he's aware of what motivates. To, he'll, he is not talking out of both sides of his mouth. I don't think he's, you know, being mendacious. He's just he he knows what his audience, what these people need to hear, because his ultimate aim is to get everybody home. So, you know, you have the officers. I'll give you one speech about honor and dying noble death. The soldiers. It's going to be more about we'll get you home. Yeah. And like I say, after they reach the sea and discipline starts breaking down you see a lot more sacrifices and omens and using the notion of angering the gods to kind of try to keep people in line to make that last push home uh there's that part where somebody sneezes middle of a speech yeah and it's random but he kind of harnesses it and like treats it as an omen and gets everybody going yeah it's um it, it he has a there's a struggle kind of the fractured nature of it all and i felt at some points he was just like there was a sense of i just kind of want to not have to deal with this <laughs> like this is um i imagine this took a very long time to do just I, the I, writing I, of the book? no just like the actual journey just like it was a couple of years when it yeah was so it's i can see how that could wear on someone to sort of well, and the soldiers too, you know, you gotta, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And it seemed like one issue after the other, what, like a different tribe, a different, and it wasn't just one sort of particular enemy, I guess you could say, but it was. Yeah. Yeah. On the March, it, it wasn't the Persian army yeah. for the bulk of it. It's, it's the, the tribes that have to fight their way through and cross all these mountains and getting ambushed by the Highland tribe and all that stuff. But I, I had this quote near the end. Um, and it's when the Spartans ask uh, Sooths, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that at all correctly, what uh, sort of person Xenophon was. And he said he was not a bad man, except that he was too much of a friend of the ordinary soldiers. And he went on, and for that reason, he had not so well off as he might be, which I thought was an interesting take on the view that some people took on, you know, heading up a large army is it was all for them it was all their personal gain is what i took from that and it didn't seem like xenophon was that wasn't his main aim like to 
gather houses, resources in the lot. So no, and towards the end, doesn't he kind of toys with the idea of establishing a city? It'd be like a Greek colony, but he would be they don't call it king. He'd be in charge of the city. It'd be his city. Mm-hmm. He kind of toys with that, and that's kind of him maybe flirting with the idea of getting some personal gain out of it. You know, he decides not to. But that is interesting. It's like he's kind of sort of tempted. I'm like, yeah, I could stay here, and because he's also in trouble. He Socrates, his mentor, was either about to be killed or had been killed. He had fought for a foreign army, so he, he knew he kind of might have some trouble when he gets back to Athens. And I yeah. think he would turn around and be exiled later. Like he, yeah, he politically in trouble in Athens. Yeah. So I think he kind of knew that, and it was tempting. Like I got some soldiers here, I could establish a little colony, but a- he wouldn't be leading his his guys all the way home. Yeah, you know, and I, for a number of reasons, he decides not to. But. Um- yeah, and it's it's that end part where he gets kind of accused of essentially say he actually convinces him that like this guy didn't pay you the money that he he told me he was going to pay you sort of thing. And I would say the last, I don't know, 30 pages is it's the highlight of his sort of his way with words and his and it made me think and I there's no way of knowing this but how much of this is him sort of do you think this is completely accurate or do you think he's he's writing this quite a bit after the fact it's a version a version i i kind of felt some of the speeches might be, might have been you know mm-hmm. you know um built up a little bit maybe because it's impossible to know like what you said or whatever that so it's obviously not gonna be like yeah 100 factual or whatever but like a general feeling of the speeches i guess is maybe what he was going for i don't know it depends on how reliable but and you have you should do that with this book take it with a grain of salt because it's yeah. the guy writing himself as the hero but you really have to do that with every other work of history ever too yeah you know and you really have to i mean it's you know this and, is probably and, especially of a work this old it's just the um I mean, this, how old is, would this be? 2,600 years ago? Yeah. Um, and it feels, I would say this, this is, we've read a couple different sort of ancient, not ancient texts, but like I, Claudius. I know that was written recently, but like it, the story That's takes place. Yeah. Um, I thought this was a little bit, this is probably the most dry account just because it was probably written, you know, it was written that long ago. Um it's translated from ancient Greek, you know. It's, so it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's the most accessible. There's a ton of characters. Um, and that would be sort of my, that's why I probably took so long to read it. Just, there's just a lot of names and a lot of just, um, yeah. I don't know. I, the parts I liked, I really liked. But anyway, what I was getting at, um, I was struck by how much it seems similar, but also at the same time, how much I kept thinking how different this time was to, to ours. But the stuff that was similar was sort of, I guess it's been similar for 2000 years. Just why, why people do certain things, why, how people control other people, um, why groups of people can suddenly change on, or, you know, change their opinion on someone why people become upset i feel like all those things in this book um are not that different than today 
And I thought that was kind of the most interesting part of the the tale is how much you can find that's similar to human nature, I guess. Yeah. Which shouldn't be that all that surprising, but it's kind of surprising when you're reading this old of a of a story, I guess. Yeah. I think that's what's cool about it, because I agree 100. That is what makes it fascinating. And like I say, that's I think that's why it's still around, and and read. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you know what it is. It, it, we have in our society, it, I call it kind of the myth of progress. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean, we think we're above people you know we look at the past it's kind of barbaric and we look at it as a you know a, a continuing path upwards towards something you think human you know we, we think we're morally or, or psychologically better than people in the past when really people people are people and have been people and technology is different this society was more warlike what I'll stop you. What I think people get confused is progress and technology. They equate mm-hmm. that to progress of like thought and human nature. Morality and, and psychology. Psychology. And they get those two things confused. And they think maybe 2000 years ago, there wasn't this complex. Yeah, there's, there is an assumption. Rationale, that, psychology, all that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Deals yeah. With. yeah. Yeah. There was no, you know, therapy. So they weren't, you know. <laughs> But, but, but I think, and it's not, it's not like, I don't want, what I mean by admit, it's kind of one of the things that un, like kind of unstated underpinnings of our modern society is that things are humming great and the past is the past. And, you know, it's interesting stories, but it doesn't really have much to teach us when really it's, we're, people are the same. We're in different positions, but what motivates people, their fears, jealousies, all that stuff is pretty similar. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it can be, one of the things I really liked about reading this was, yeah, you kind of realize how similar it all is. Yeah, how much you read these speeches and you go, oh, this, I could see a military person um, giving this speech or I could, the reasoning behind doing certain things. Oh, that's, that's smart. That's, so it, you don't feel that different from the sort of the, the characters in the book, which was for me surprising. Um but I mean, there's you're going to feel the difference between technology and how people lived, and you know how, the importance of just getting like basic. Um, I kind of wish it was little. I would like a different book where you kind of went into just how people survived. I guess. Oh yeah, well I mean I'd be fascinated with. Um, yeah, they, I mean they had to forage. There's some cool tidbits. Had, yeah, like, like how the foraging, uh, how much of the population was was around? Were the were these were these areas empty? Were these areas full of? I think they were. It's it was a mix, I would assume. Um, yeah, but there are mountain tribes, and I mean, he talks about foraging for uh, in my translations of wild asses and ostriches mm-hmm. for food. You know, uh, then they eat dolphins at one point. By the sea, it mentions meeting dolphin. Would you eat a dolphin? Had to. I guess, yeah. yeah I, I don't think they. I don't think they were thinking about that. <laughs> oh, I bet they didn't hesitate. I yeah. I don't think there was like this. But they grilled them. You think so? Just some fire. I, I was all, for most of this book, and I think if you read that, you're just kind of trying to picture these men in this situation and just this 
the landscape? What would the landscape look like? Because I think that's the thing that will would change in a way, I guess. Um, but you're trying. I was just trying to imagine. Okay, what would it be in like little camps? Would they be fires? How spread out would they be? I would. I'd have all these questions in my head of like the minutia of this many people at this time. Mm-hmm. How many deserters would there be? Would there just be like a like an influx of people coming around? I don't know. I just had it kind of led me down some rabbit holes of thinking about the, this time that you probably can't answer because it's maybe not written down or you can, if it was written down, the, the text has been lost or what, but. There's a, so uh, some of the books I've read about Alexander Great talks about his march back to uh, Greece or he's aiming for Greece, but from India to Babylon, the, uh-huh. there's some accounts of okay. how people live there on his route back. You know, there, there, are, there, are, there are accounts of what people did. And, you know, on the Alexander one, there was a tribe of people who, because he was going through a lot of desert, and there's a tribe of people kind of who lived on the shore of the desert, but uh, on the shore of the sea too. And they were like fish people, like everything huh. was fish. Their clothes were fish, you know, fish bones, everything was fish. And they smell bad. So but, you were gonna you're gonna ask me at the beginning, do you think you could be a mercenary at this time? No, well, yeah. Or a soldier or a how do you think it would have fared as being part of this army? Um, not good. <laughs> I th- I think it's I think the aspect of we could probably understand like if we could speak the same language, like all this that kind of stuff, I think we would get. I just think the how rough and rugged they had to live, I think would be a shock yeah. to us. Um, I, I don't and, think that would be pleasant. I, I, I think I could kind of deal with the hiking and the, the marching. I think you could kind of make a make a thing of it. Like, oh, it's a nice, fun little camping trip. Mm-hmm. What I think would be terrifying, maybe one of the most terrifying things in this world would be to be in one of those ancient battles where it's just a, you have a sword and a shield and you're just you're, you're in one of those like in gladiator mm-hmm. or braveheart or whatever to be a soldier just fighting other big strong dudes with nothing but a sword hand to hand i think would be terrifying because how do you extract yourself from that let's say you, you defeat one guy in a sword battle you're not done like just be crazy. How many of those people do you think killed their own dudes? A lot, I would assume. It would be confusing. Yeah. You just, yeah. It's just a, um, um, yeah. There's some, um, not tactically, it doesn't go into, but there's some, there's some situations where you're just like, oh man, they're going to get, um, there's some the points where it seemed like, oh, they're going to not make it. But um, anyway, you, did you watch, um you were telling me that this has been an inspiration for yeah movies and stories that you might not expect well no Uh, that movie the warriors yes which i kind of i hadn't seen but i knew from pop culture you know it's that famous scene with the guy clicking the bottles on his hand saying Mm -hmm. warriors come out to play like that movie is based on this book like pretty explicitly i mean it's it's a in a weird futuristic New York and it's all gangs, but the gang, like the little street gangs are 
called by a meeting to Cyrus by a guy named Cyrus in the beginning. You know, and they have to go from I think the Bronx to Long Island, and then the guy named Cyrus gets killed, and then these the group the warriors have to make it all the way back to their home turf. Hey, well, and I, I did not know that. It's yeah, it's kind of interesting because it is. Um, the nuts and bolts of it are a kind of classic. What would you say, an adventure story in a way? Just a hmm? if you don't go into sort of Xenophon's like philosophy and his psychology of leading men on the basis of it, it's a group of 10,000 guys trying to fight their way home, and that's a very basic and exciting adventure story. So it's not surprising that this tale has been turned into you know adapted i guess into different stories so i just thought that was interesting that for a while the story has been um kind of the basis for some stuff that you might not know so that would be a fun story i mean i think they could make they could do a little mini series just the, the straight up story and we haven't done this would you make this we haven't done this in a while would you make this a adapt this into a movie tv show mini series play uh okay so i would do two things i would do just straight up a big budget hbo miniseries yeah be pretty cool just the way it happened bunch of sword fights epic stuff like you could right you can make a pretty good tv series on it i think you would um distill this down a little bit and it would be yeah it would make you can make 10 episodes yeah eight eight ten episodes i think but here's my movie idea. So I think the story straight up, Netflix, HBO, whatever. How about a movie, a modern telling, but it's mercenaries, like Blackwater type mercenaries okay. in Iraq. And so they almost follow the same route. It wouldn't be 10,000. Oh, I see what you're but Like a platoon or whatever, a group of 10 or whatever. And they... Let's say they're 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 in Iraq on some a mercenary business. So it's like under maybe not supposed to be there. It's kind of mm-hmm. under the cover of whatever. And then back in America, like the billionaire CEO of Blackwater or whoever mm-hmm. gets indicted or something. And so he's got to kind of cut cut ties, cut their losses, deny that they're there. And so that's they're abandoned on their own in that would Iraq, work. even Iran or something and then they have they follow maybe almost the same route they have to maybe go incognito they got to strip their camo stuff and it's their journey home so you do like a modern telling of my only I think why they wouldn't do this is because um it would be hard to take the mercenaries into a, like invading a country and make them the good guys mm. People do that all the time. Okay, okay. Have if you ever seen Three Kings? That's true. That's a very good yeah, movie. Claude, and you can do. You could do. I mean, I, I don't think you get budgeting if you went too radical. But I think there's just you know you don't have them. Yeah. It's, okay. No nope, mercenaries, guys who were in the initial 2003 invasion of Iraq and decided to sign on. You know that happens a lot. There. And they have like a um, a U.S like lays on like a military guy and that they, kind of guy. No, they're all they're all ex-military. Okay. That's how they're all ex-military, but and the after some Blackwater like company, the CEO gets in trouble okay. and it like is like 
washes his hands of him because he's a slime ball, you know. Yeah, okay. They just, just abandon abandoned ship in Iraq or Iran or wherever. And they gotta make their way make their way I, back. I could see that working. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. I think that'd be a I'd watch that. I would kind of my ideal thing would be just a straight up sort of you can't do all the different characters, but you can do sort of the highlights, like we talked about the C, the C. Um, but I think that would be an interesting. That probably cost more money just to get the, all the the costume and set design and all that. Um, I was also curious too, and this is not really on point. How much of these sites are still you can visit? Did you ever look into I that? Know. I mean, I mean, I think even the the big city of Babylon is just kind of ruins now okay a lot the desert are buried a lot the desert buried a lot that's a good point you can probably find some it'd be interesting but over in anatolia i'd like to see some but see some stuff i'd like to see where they they know the mountain they like where they saw the sea that'd be kind of cool to climb up it there's a there's a good map and i don't know if you have the same thing where it kind of shows the route um yeah through through the kind of going out to um through into persia and their, their way back um it's a very long route it's a it would, i think it would have definitely taken them a couple of years to do the whole wow their feet would have been sore yes <laughs> uh did you have any other um yeah a couple more things points yeah okay fun things to get fun. to the okay. bees you remember the bees yes with their poison honey, I looked into it. Really? Oh, so kind of like the their armies marching along, they find you know foraging for food. They find a bunch of bees and beehives and plenty of honey for everybody. Eat a bunch of it, and then they find themselves kind of hallucinating, tripping out, and then they get really sick. It's just kind of an aside. And, but you know what that was? There's a special type of bee that's kind of only in turkey and nepal oh really but it's heavily it's all rhododendron but oh. like it's a certain type of rhododendron and that's the only plant and so the bees are a little little more aggressive and they're, they're black huh. and the, the the honey in light doses is kind of you know make you feel a little little head high maybe you hallucinate a bit too much it'll make you sick huh Okay. So that was interesting. I looked up, you can buy it. It's like $166 an ounce. It's pretty, pretty expensive. It does sound okay. I was going to buy some, but it was not, I can't justify that much, but I would be interested in trying little bits. I bet that it brought some excitement to the journey. Yeah. Till you get sick. So, you know, about a couple hundred years later, Pompeii, the guy who fought Julius Caesar and mm-hmm. lost the Civil War, he was fleshing out, he was fighting um, a guy named Mithridates, who is maybe the most fascinating human being in the historical record. Explain. Well, we'll get into, we might, I'll, I've been sitting on it for a while, but the next yeah. thing we do should maybe be on him. We could do a whole big thing. He's fascinating. Okay. But he was a king of Pontus and he kind of got into it 
uh, Pontus is a little kingdom and he made a, a rival empire in Rome. He was a thorn in Rome's side and uh, he was fighting Pompey. He knew about the poison bees. And so as Pompey was chasing Mithridates through kind of the same area, Mithridates troops doubled back and kind of left the honey. Like they, they maneuvered, I'm, I'm assuming the hives or whatever, maneuvered them close to the road, knowing that Pompey's men honey and then they doubled back when pompey's men were all sick from the honey and then they you know gorilla ambush and killed the troops but, i don't know if you could teach that in military school these days but maybe you could teach i mean you couldn't trick them with honey and they could have their they have food in their big old backpacks <laughs> so mr days let me give you a little teaser one of the many things he did he kind of made himself immune to poison in the court just, life that he was raised in, his dad was poisoned by his mom and he had to run away. Uh, but anyway, so it was just people poisoned, like people who wanted to get you would poison you. And so he took little tiny, he made himself basically in his youth, he took little tiny doses of different poisons. And so when he grew up and became king, people did try to kill them and it didn't work because he was immune to arsenic. Dedicated. It, it was fast. He's a anyway. We'll we'll get into it. He's the most fascinating person in the historical record. <laughs> hey, but anyway, all right. The bees. Uh, it's another interesting thing. I think it's kind of cool. Alexander the Great have definitely read this book. And it's probably one of his key resources because he turned around forty years later ish and invaded Persia. Yeah. And, the anabasis would have been like kind of a roadmap. Like here's the territory. Here's giving an idea where the tribes are. A weakness. Here's how the Persian army fights, right? Here's uh, Cyrus, his whole thing. He charged Artaxerxes and it didn't work because he got hit with a javelin. But one of the things that enabled Alexander to defeat much larger Persian armies he kind of took, he, he, was, he just went right from the middle. He went right for the king and the number of the opposing troops kind of didn't matter because he just, you know, huh. took his best dues and just charged right in there. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of fascinating. He, he would have taken a, a annotated copy of the Anabasis with him into Persia. That's a good point. We've read the same book. We've read the same book. Us and Alexander the Great. That is kind of weird. Yeah, I always thought it was weird too that the time from this to the time of like Jesus is four hundred years. Yep. I mean, if you think four hundred years from now, or like you know, it's so different. And I just wonder how. I always think about that in, in like history, like how much stuff changes over time. And then if you compare two times that you would think would be more similar, does that make sense? Like you, yeah. Would well, think yeah, four hundred like, BC to you know time of Christ, you would think, oh, that probably is not that different but if you think you know yeah, that's 16 1620 to yeah, right yeah. now you'd be like oh it's completely that's different. huge that's spain like spain the spanish empire yeah it's muskets and yeah i don't you know, know all that stuff plymouth, I think, they, they would have just found plymouth yeah which yeah. is wild the yeah. thing <laughs> That this story is that, like, if you break it up, you're like, this is a very, very old story. Yeah. But a lot of people are the same. That's, that's, that's the main takeaway. Um, 
people have not really changed their way of thinking about things in that, certain respects. Hey, yeah. that leads me into this quote I wanted to. Okay. This is a cool quote. I've been waiting to use it on this show for a while. But, okay, so this comes from, of all things, a James Lee Burke mystery novel. I like it. I think it's kind of cool. Okay. The advantage of having a little knowledge about the classical world is that few other people do. The second advantage is your awareness that every problem facing us today has already occurred many times previously, and the behavior of the players is always predictable, and the consequences are always the same. It's a bit like going to the track with the names of the winners and losers in your pocket. Every literary plot is either in the Bible, Greek mythology, or Elizabethan theater. Very well said. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It was good. Why, so why read this? Why, why read ancient history? It's all been, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. Give you some idea what's going on and what you're facing. I, I don't want us to be just, why read? No, we, we can't be that podcast. But I read five lessons that I learned from reading nothing but self-help books for the last two years. All the stories are the same. Ten main takeaways from reading Xenophone. No, but you, you, you reach a point where me, the skeptic of reading these sort of ancient um, texts and sort of the older stories from I, Claudius and, and stuff like that, I'm more open to it definitely now just because you do find the similarities and it, they're not, it's not a jarring tale. It's, it's um, lessons that are kind of the same for 2000 years. So it's, it's, it's fascinating just to see the similarities between people. Um, you know be- what's cool about this too? What's that? This and I think Alexander the Great. It, it, they're good, interesting mixes of thought and action. Yep. Xenophon is tutored by Socrates. Alexander was tutored by Aristotle. So you have two legendary historical thinkers who tutored two pretty famous, you know, quote unquote, men of action. And what I think makes their stories, one of the reasons it's so compelling is because it kind of a, how does this person tutored in philosophy and Socrates dealt with, you know, the, the ideal society and whatever, when it's put into action, practical purposes, yeah. how does a person trained or steeped in that lineage act in the, in the real world? And that's another like, yeah, blending of thought and action, I thought was kind of. Yeah, kind of cool. something interesting to ponder. Taking yeah, someone who's who learned from them, and then was wasn't just a philosopher. Was in a, had to do different things, but took the kind of lessons he learned into. You know, trying How do you to, apply it in the real world? Try to apply it to ten thousand people trying to just get home. <laughs> exactly. So, you make make good speeches. There you go. Uh, any final thoughts on the on this work of? Um, Oh, it's inspired a bunch of uh, followers, readers. People still like it. Adapters. People quote them. People like them. You notice how I snuck uh, some uh, Robert Green in there. I know. I know. I know. He's an he's, guy. He's we can add it to our TBR when we when we do. Eventually, and doesn't even have to be. This is a different one. This is a, from the Thirty Three Strategies of War. <laughs> he's sneaky good. I like him. Okay. 
He's lumped uh, in with the self-help type people, but he's there's there's. He's I don't want to. I'm not going to judge him. I'm not going to jump. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I had a, a, a opinion about this ancient uh, works that I just thought I wouldn't like, and it's turned out to be false. I would say this. This wasn't my favorite of the stuff we've read, but I did find stuff that I found very enjoyable, which I think um, anybody who's kind of coming to this for the first time, I think you will find that too. And if you're a real, like, I think you're more of a geek about this than I am. I think there's a lot into this that you can go off into different areas of, of uh, reading. There's different books. Uh, the introduction to this book is 50 pages where it kind of tells you where you can go and, kind of talks about how Xenophon might have exaggerated certain aspects. And it's just kind of a fascinating look at history and, and storytelling and that sort, sort of stuff. So Xenophon wrote other books. Look at I, ordered, I ordered this accidentally because I thought it was an annotated in a basis. It's a whole, it's the Hellenica. It's a whole other 600 page thing that he wrote about the history of Athens. And there's a rich, if I could go back to school or if i was going to go back to school and get an advanced degree i think i might do the ancient ancient stuff i get it i get it i probably won't because there's absolutely useless to me <laughs> but if i had to it's like eh, that's what i would want to study yeah. you know? it's um there's a lot to um delve into definitely so hey don't you wish what will end we can end on this but uh one of the things socrates or xenophon went to socrates to ask if he should go any or no xenophon was planning on going to an oracle to ask socrates hey should i go but what he asked and socrates kind of pointed out xenophon asked socrates what what should i ask the oracle or which god i'm going to ask the oracle which god to sacrifice to and socrates is like well i think you've already made up your mind to go because you asked which god to sacrifice to not whether i should go oh i got you yeah, that's what i was but i was thinking i want they like i want an oracle they had oracles like you could actually go to a place and like do some ceremonial thing and an old lady in a cave would kind of give you little bit of advice or something like i think they just had too much power they had too much power yeah it worked alexander saw oracle it was a big thing i'm gonna go to the oracle at delphi an oracle and and see what i think oracles just got renamed what fortune tellers gurus gurus i want to go to a place and get like dark i think they got renamed you know that in a weird way and it was a book we were going to talk about in a couple of weeks or maybe next week I don't know. Uh, yeah. masters of atlantis like that yeah. those kind of characters i think oracles devolved into that those kind of characters those kind of guys yeah i mean that's a theme and we'll get into it but yeah in that book yeah we became con men they became and- like the pinnacle of society to like the living under the underpasses of the highways i, I want an oracle okay and people scoff like we're all scientific minded now like they scoff oh that's silly superstition but it's like yeah i don't know nobody knows who they are or what they want (laughs) it would help to have an old lady in a cave and don't scoff neil degrasse tyson 
and whoever they're like, oh, that's just an old lady in a cave. Like we don't even have old ladies in caves. We don't have anything. We used to have fortune cookies, but now they don't even do fortunes. They just do bland like calendar, you know, calendar quote of the day stuff. So that's one of my things. I guess I'll write into the newspaper. I don't know who you contact about that. Well, if you're listening, and to we this, get an oracle. If you know an oracle, yeah. Or if you want to just read my poem, you fortune teller. Okay. That. Tarot cards. Ish. No, I don't know. I think you want to. I would think you want a, a classic oracle. I want to go into a cave and kind of be told a riddle, <laughs> and then misunderstand it. And then, and then influence the world from your misunderstanding. Break a bunch of things, but then come around and realize, like, oh. Anyway. Um, so let's see here. That was Xenophon. Most importantly, if you know an oracle or where to find one, let Matt know. Um but if you've listened to our last couple of episodes, you know that we've added a ton of books to our TBR. We're reading a large stack of books. Um, we're getting through them uh, actually quicker than normal coming up. So we have a couple titles yes. that we're, we're good on. We will be having an episode on Masters of Atlantis by Charles Portis. I just mentioned that, which is a hilarious book that also delves into, I, I felt like some, some, you know some interesting concepts about i don't know society but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that one uh we have summer lightning by pg woodhouse which is a pg woodhouse if you're not familiar is one of matt's favorite writers uh, comedic writers this is my first pg woodhouse i just finished it and it is fantastic it is uh a quick read if you're not familiar with pg woodhouse this is my only PG Woodhouse I've read. Read this book. Listen to our episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's it's just a fantastic read. So uh, I can see you smiling, Matt. So I, I know you're happy. You, that. You, yeah, you texted me, I think, after you started. Like, yeah. Woodhouse is delightful. Yeah, I did. I, like, ah, I told you. Or I don't think I said I told you because they don't seem smug. But yeah, that's what I thought. He, he is... It's very fun. I told you I see how people can get addicted to him. And I kind of like, he has so many books. I'm like, I don't have time to just like go into just read PG Woodhouse books. But I don't know. It's it's really good. And that'll be a fun episode. And if you haven't read PG Woodhouse, read Summer Lightning and you'll listen to our episode in the next couple of weeks because it's it's a delightful book. Um, we have a seasonal book, uh, Black leopard red wolf you're done i am making that's my big push um it'll be interesting to talk about that book <laughs> yeah i mean i was gonna say um real rush i don't i, I don't know how we're gonna talk about it that's uh it, i we'll, we'll talk about it but yeah, uh, it, 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 yeah I don't know. marlon james is kind of uh first part in his um trilogy where the second one just came out i believe last year he's a but, good writer very good i'm just not sure what happened I have similar I'm like half the time I'm reading I'm like I'm not quite sure I know what's going on in that book um, but then there are parts like I kind of like this book a lot so it's, it's we'll get into that we have um, last month in Ju- or this month in June we added Loris 
which is a kind of medieval, it was a, a kind of new book, uh, but it takes place in medieval Russia. It's gotten a lot yeah, of great reviews. Um, so that's one of our books. And then the sort of official pick is Fifth Business uh, by Robertson Davies, which is a book I just started this weekend or this week, and it's very good. Yeah, I'm like, I started it too. It's- I, I like it. It's, um, it has, if you like a good character study, it sort of vaguely, not, I don't know why I'm saying this, but it sort of reminded me of the red and the black just by that like dense personal nature to the story. I don't know. I like the rhythm of it too. I do. I like the way he writes it. Very it's strong going, narration. It's going smooth. Yeah. And we've gotten some comments, um, about that book uh, from one of your posts on Instagram. And we just yeah. decided this many people are telling us to read it. We have to read this book. So, uh, so far, so good. We have The Silent Patient, which is our Patreon thriller book club. And I'm, I'm going to try, don't hold me to this, but I'm going to try and do like a mid book. I'm, I'm about midway through that book. I just kind of want to put something on our Patreon, just like a written thing. Um, just kind of, talking about what makes a thriller and how what are like the mechanics of it like you're gonna write i'm gonna try i'm gonna try yeah i i'm just i like the thriller and like in this book in particular like what is the author doing like we're looking at uh trying to understand a killer but at the same time we're getting background on a kind of like a psychologist and that seems to be like a not an uncommon trope and thrillers like you have the person who committed the crime and then the story is also very interested in the person trying to understand that so uh i think there's a lot to delve into thrillers in that nature. well write the essay and i'll uh, critique it thank you matt thank you I, no, it's not really an essay it's just a what's going on with the story wide aspects of it that i like just uh just kind of yeah some, some notes i want to just get on to the patreon so all right, I'm excited. Hopefully, I will get that done here soon. We also have Life and Fate, which is our yearly book. And you told me to read Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. I think I've covered all the books that have been added to our TBR. We're going to pick another seasonal. We're going to add more. Yeah. And I'm reading uh, on my own. Brad Kelly sent me his book, House of Sleep. I'm also reading that. I, I like it. It's very good. I like it. So we are reading a ton of books. Um, and please, uh, any of those books, join us and read them and send us. Uh, you can reach out to us on our email or uh, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, and tell us your thoughts while you're reading the book, at the end of the book, when we release the episode. Feel free to recommend books that you think we would like like uh the fifth business we kind of posted that picture and people said oh i love that book so we had to pick that so feel free to um add books to our tbr yeah and we're doing a seasonal so if you got a big old Uh, yeah big old one you want to do for like four months let us know let me know and this is it could be this this will be um sometimes a great notion that's the book we did uh for our last seasonal so that length it could be 600 pages 700 it could be a thousand pages it could be 1500 pages whatever you want to do keep so, it so. under 1500 <laughs> that that's reasonable there's not too many 1500 pages books brandon sanderson i'm looking at you okay yeah. so, um 
Well, I don't have anything else. Matt, do you have any final thoughts for the listener? It's been no. a, a trip down uh, ancient history. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a good ride. Um, what? Well, the only thing I can say is uh, be on the lookout for our next episode. And if you know of an oracle, reach out to Matt. Yeah. And on that note, we'll talk to you soon. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>